Well, it appears that I've decided to pick this up again. It's been over a year since I've done this, about a year and a half almost. And I, I, I wanted to try to find a different way, I guess, of podcasting. I was getting a little bored with just kind of reciting everything that was happening in my portfolio. Uh, so I've given it some thought. I'm not sure I've quite have down what I want to do here, but um, I just wanted to pick it back up again before I lose the ability uh, you know, to podcast, to forget, uh, before I forget all the things that I need to do in order to put a podcast through. Um, so I'm just going to pick this up and maybe um, instead of doing a weekly thing on my portfolio, I will instead do like a monthly recap of what's happening. Um, because if you just look at the blog, chasingtheyield.com, I kind of, um, I, I try to post things that are happening with my portfolio. So when a, a company that uh, I have holdings, uh, you know, that I own stock, um, when they increase a dividend, decrease a dividend, um, when something happens where I need to um, sell a stock and, you know, and change it or whenever I need to take some kind of an action, um, with regard to my portfolio or something is happening that has to do with my portfolio, I usually try to blog it there. And I, I do it just for myself, really, so I can uh, keep track of what's going on because it's quite a, it's quite a lot. Uh, in my portfolios, I have the three, and if you go to chasingtheyield.com, there's a link there for the portfolios. And I have three different ones, and it's a total of 103 different holdings. Um, in the uh, low-yield portfolio, I've got 62 different holdings. The medium-yield portfolio, I have 50 different holdings. And in the high-yield portfolio, I have 15 different holdings. So, you know, it's a bunch of companies to keep track of. And I don't remember them all um, off the top of my head. You know, I, I try to, but... That's the whole purpose of me even doing any of this stuff because uh, when I started uh, dividend investing and in investing for passive income, uh, I can't remember how many years it's been now, maybe since 20, I, I really got started somewhere about 10 years ago maybe, totally. Um, not doing exactly what I'm doing now, but just kind of um, getting my feet wet in investing in stocks and such. Uh, and then I developed this strategy through reading other uh, financial blogs and other articles about um, investing for passive income. And this is where I've come up with what I'm doing today. That's been happening, I think, over the last four years, pretty much. And, you know, I started podcasting uh, for a year, about a, about a year and a half ago. Um, I ended what I was doing. I was podcasting for like a year. And it was just kind of like reciting what had happened in my portfolio with some additional news stories and stuff that maybe were relevant to to my portfolio. And I got a little bored doing it. So I'm going to change it up here. See if see if anybody likes this better. Um, speaking of recaps, um, for July, the month of July, 
Um, I did make some changes in the portfolio, and you'll have to go look at those. I, I wasn't even intending on doing this recap here because I actually have a set uh, thing of content I was going to talk about. But while I've I've got it, I have a rough recap of um, what happened in my portfolio. So the my annual income went up by $128 due to uh, due to uh, companies increasing their dividends by a certain percentages. So I had 10 total that announced dividend changes, which raised my annual income. Now, $128 doesn't sound like a lot, but if you think about it in terms of what you're spending on different streaming packages, stuff like that, that could handle, uh, you know, my, my Netflix is like $10 a month and that's going to go up. So that increase right there just covers my Netflix subscription all by itself. Uh, you know, so it may not sound like a lot um, when you hear just, you know, that amount, but uh, this happens, you have to remember too that this happens, usually happens every month um, that the income goes up. So uh, the 10 companies that increased my uh, dividends were Cullen Frost, 5.7%, Arbor Realty increased theirs by 2.4%, Clorox raised theirs 1.7%, Community Trust Bank, uh, they increased theirs by 4.5%. Community Bank raised theirs by 2.3%. Smucker, uh, which I love. I haven't bought it in a while, but I love Goober Grape. I grew up on it. Uh, and uh, we used to use the jelly jars after they were empty for uh, drinking glasses. Um, they raised their payout by 3.9%. Uh, let's see, NNN Realty, they're a, a real estate uh, REIT. Uh, they, let's see, they raised their dividends by 2.7%. Enterprise Product Partners, they increased theirs by 2%. And OZK Bank raised theirs by 2.9%. So those 10 companies, let's see, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5... Six, seven, eight, and that's only nine, not ten. Uh, the reason I, I get a monthly recap from a company that I use to kind of monitor my, uh, my portfolios, um, they also included um, the money market fund uh, for Fidelity, which doesn't really count because that's just a money market fund, so it's neither here nor there. Um, if you do hear some strange noises, it's either my, my keyboard drawer where my microphone is mounted. I still have never uh, gotten a uh, proper uh, boom arm for my microphone. It's just on a stand on my desktop, and my keyboard drawer is right underneath it where I need to click my mouse. Um, I also have three dogs in the, in the office here, my home office. Uh, so you might hear them shake, bark. Stretch, scratch, who knows? So bear with me. Uh, but what I really wanted to talk today, talk about today, is um, a few things that I wish I knew uh, knew about in my twenties. I'm 56 years old, and as I mentioned earlier, I didn't really start doing anything with investing until I was in my mid 40s. I didn't know anything about it, didn't know um, what to do. I had some savings. Um, so I wasn't totally in the dark with all of that. Um, but it wasn't much. You know, um, 
and there were the, the three things that I wish I knew about uh, were personal profit, which is basically paying yourself, which is the, you know, the cliched line by all the financial experts is pay yourself first. Um, passive income, which is what I'm doing now, and uh, taxes. Those three items, to me, are, are three of the most important uh, things that, that I, I wish I knew uh, back in my 20s. And the reason being, with those three items, I probably could have maximized the, the money that I put away you know, and the money that I invested because compound dividend um, increases um, builds wealth pretty fast. And, you know, you don't, you, like right now I have mine divided into three portfolios. And this is just strictly for income because now I use the money to live off of. You know, if I started this, this method back in my 20s, um, the, the nest egg I would have built would have been would have been sizable, would have been nice. You know, while I'm not poor right now, you know, the, the nest egg I have right now had to do not from investing money, uh, but through uh, some property transactions that I j just happened to have the right timing on, uh, which allowed me to basically, you know, cut out uh, the rat race and uh, stay home and figure out how to make make my money make money for me rather than me going out and working for somebody else or working for myself and and making a you know regular income that way so the the first item personal profit which is um you know what it sounds like you you pay yourself first and while you know everybody everybody the you know financial experts that you hear generally use 10% as like a as a rule of thumb and that's what i taught my children and it probably was not the wisest um thing to do because while 10% as a rule of thumb is nice if if you really take stock of what you're you know how you live uh, you could probably find out you could put away a lot more than just 10% you know and if you're just starting out, like when I was in my 20s, I got married when I was 19. I had my first daughter, my first child when I was 20. And then I had my son a couple of years after that. So money was pretty tight, uh, especially after my son was born. We went to a, a single income household because the amount of money my wife was making was just going straight to daycare. So, you know, what's the point of paying for daycare for two children if all of your income goes for somebody else to take care of your kids. So, you know, we made a decision and she decided that she would stay home, take care of, you know, both kids until um, my son was school age. And then, you know, she would go back, go back to work. Excuse me, coffee break. Um, and in, in the time between um, having my first child and my wife going back to work, we amassed quite a bit of debt, especially with our first, our first kid. You know, we were both really young. We didn't know what to do with money. Credit cards were easy to come by back then. I got in a ton of credit card debt, just like everybody, you know, everybody else, every other young idiot out there. I got into a, a ton of credit card debt. 
And then uh, we reached a point where I just had to, you know, we I had to sit down and say, look, we can't, we can't continue this. This, this is just gonna, this is gonna bankrupt us. So I put together a budget. I just sat there with a piece of paper. You know, um, this is back in the late 80s, early 90s. So even computers back then were not uh, easy to come by. They were very expensive. Uh, so I just sat down with a piece of paper and I took the amount of money I was bringing in. I put it at the top and then I listed, um, started listing below our expenses. It was just as simple as that. And I started with first, uh, you know, necessary expenses, things like food, you know, clothing, um, housing. Uh, you know, we bought a, we bought a condo and then, uh, you know, probably about a year after we got married, we bought a, a two bedroom condo. And then I think it was about a year after that, we decided, you know, we wanted to have another child and so we moved to a house. We bought a house. So, you know, that those are the first things um, that should go on your list, the things that, that you need to survive. And the, and the things that you need to survive are basically food, clothing, and shelter. So you, you put those items there and you, you know, that's at the top of your list. Then the next things are supplement, uh, supplementary <laughs> Supplement. I don't know. Uh, sometimes when your brain mispronounces things. Um, anyway, supplementary expenses, and they are what they sound like. They are things that supplement your necessary expenses. Uh, so that those are things like uh, utilities, you know, transportation, uh, those kinds of things that support your ability to maintain or you know like uh, like even maintenance on your house or your condo or your car those are all supplementary expenses they're necessary uh they're not in the same category you can live without them I mean, maybe not for long but you you know you can those are the things you, you would push off uh to make your mortgage payment or um you know to make sure you have food for your family and then the last thing are the discretionary expenses those are what I categorize as wants, they're not needs. They're things that you want. You know, you want a new car, you want um, a new watch. You know, you want, uh, I don't know, a pack of donuts even. You know, whatever those wants are, you know, those, those are the things that go at the bottom and those are the things you cut out first. And that's, you know, also like uh, events like uh, concerts and sporting events or dining out. Those are all the things that you put at the very bottom. And, you, you know, you draw a line between those categories, necessary, supplementary, and discretionary. And then at the bottom, you know, you subtract all those expenses from your income and see where you land. Uh, you know, if you're, if you're in the negative, you're not alone. You know, I think a lot of people are, are negative, maybe even most. I don't know. I don't know what the statistics are on something like that. Uh, but I know when I was in my 20s, I was definitely spending more than I was making. And, um, you know, it's, it's a, it, it builds up. And I, I had tens of thousands of dollars in credit card debt at that time. And it took, it took, 
it, it took quite a, I, I can't remember. I, I probably wrote it down in the blog or something. I don't remember now because I'm, I'm getting old. So these things, you know, as they, as they uh, are further back in my memory, I forget how long it took, but it took quite a while to get out of the debt. And I did it this way by making a budget and living pretty strictly according to, um, you know, this, this plan. And so my first goal was to get out of debt. So I didn't have any personal profit. I had zero personal profit for a good long time. You know, I think it was somewhere in the neighborhood of 15 years maybe. Um, and yes, my income was going up during that time. And maybe it was closer to 10 years. But I, I, think, I think I'm correct when, a, when it's like 15 years to totally get out of credit card debt. And... You know, while my income rose, you know, we started to, and, and as the credit card debt started to fall, you know, we started to relax a little bit on some certain things, creature comforts, you know, more wants than needs sometimes, um, but never, never straying too far away from that overall goal of getting out of credit card debt because it was crushing. But once, once I did that and my wife went back to work, um, that, that took a tremendous amount of pressure off. Tremendous amount of pressure. And then we started to take that personal profit, you know, the money that I was putting towards credit card debt for things that I bought previously. And think about it. It's just so crazy that, I, you know, when I stop and think about it now, because I pay my credit card off every month now in full. I don't, let it roll. I don't let the balance roll. I don't pay any interest in credit cards. Um, but when I think about what I used to do in my 20s and just, you know, buy stuff and then I'm paying, uh, what was, the interest rates back then were like 14%. I don't know even know what they are right now on credit cards because I just don't care because I don't pay it. You know, the balance is paid in full. Uh, but it was like 14%, 16%. And I think in some cases it was 20% a year in interest alone on credit card debt for like a TV or, um, you know, even like baby clothes or something like that. It was just stupid, really stupid. You know, and it, and it took me years to concentrate to get that off. But once, once it was gone, it was fantastic because then all that money that I was paying towards credit card debt instead went into savings. And I was not invested in the stock market or anywhere else at that point in time. I just simply, um, you know, put money in a savings account and just let that kind of sit there and grow. And and some of it we didn't even put in the bank. We just kept in a safe in the house uh, for emergency sake. But generally, it was mostly in mostly it was all in cash, uh, either in the bank or in the in the house. And we just kept putting that away. And if I didn't go down the wrong path with spending with credit cards, the amount of wealth I could have built just with small, I mean, I wasn't making a lot of money in my 20s, but, you know, the, the hundreds of dollars I could have put away, uh, you know, and it was probably in the neighborhood of a, at least $1,000 a year I could have put away at that point in time and just never could. So, you know, I wish I, wish I learned that much earlier. So the bottom line there is um, you have to take, you know, take stock of your life 
do the things that are necessary. Spend as little as possible to, you know, to support your necessary items to survive and cut out discretionary spending to the extreme. Because in the end, uh, you know, as you get older, you realize it's just all stuff and you fill your house with this stuff and nobody wants it. Nobody wants it. So the second thing I wish I wish I knew about was passive income. I don't even think anybody was using that term back in the late 80s and 90s. Um, you know, and I don't remember the first time I heard about passive income. I think I think you know, I probably heard it for the first time somewhere in my 30s, maybe my lower 40s, and it was generally in uh, reference to, you know, real estate ownership and things like that where People pay you rent, you know, while you own a property. Uh, but the the simplest of all passive income, which, you know, it wasn't called it back then, but I knew what it was. It's just a savings account. And back when I was a kid, uh, when interest rates were high back in the 70s, you know, you could put away, we had what was called a uh, passbook savings account. And it was called a passbook savings account. If you're If you're my age... I think uh, if you're, if probably if you're 40 years old or, or older, you may have had a passbook savings account. I'm not sure when they stopped doing that. I don't even know if they still do, but uh, the reason that it was called a passbook savings account is that you would get this little booklet about the size of a passport. And whenever you would make deposits, you know, they, you, you would take your money to the bank, you'd make a deposit, you'd hand the teller your, your, your little passbook. They would take your money, they would then put it in a printer, and it would print out the amount of money that you have, you know, the amount of money you deposited, and what the current interest is that you've earned as of that date and time when they're printing. And you would go home, and you'd have this nice little booklet, and say, here's all the money I have. It was kind of cool. And and right now, you know, it's all electronic, so you can just open up a Passbook, uh, passbook. You can have a high yield savings account, which and now you can get them around five percent or so. Um, at uh, I know Ally Bank, Synchrony Bank, uh, CIT Bank, and I, I know there's others out there that are paying you know around four and a half to five percent interest on cash. And the reason it's the safest passive income you can make is because those accounts are FDIC insured. And as I understand it, it's uh, $250,000 for a single individual account or half a million dollars for a uh, joint married account, you know, or I guess it doesn't matter if you're married, maybe just a joint account up to half a million dollars. So that's a lot of cash that you could put in the bank, especially right now at current interest rates, um, earning 5%, roughly four and a half to 5% per year just letting your money sit there and it's the safest it's never going to go down it'll only go up by five percent you know now when the federal reserve changes their policies uh and maybe starts cutting interest rates again you know they're not going to look so attractive but to me if they keep interest rates for savings accounts somewhere in the two and a half percent range you know two to two and a half percent it's still reasonable to put a sizable amount a sizable amount of money uh, into a simple you know high yield savings account just so you have uh cash reserves 
that are available to you at your fingertips uh, in an emergency sake that also earns you some money. Now, the next type of passive income is real estate ownership. And, you know, I'm sure there are others out there than what I'm talking about. You've got, and I would lump, I'm sorry, let me let me backtrack a little bit. I would uh, lump certificates of deposit also into uh, that savings account type passive income. So those are things that are, you know, generally insured and um, are safe. But real estate ownership, real estate ownership is generally safe because you, when you buy a piece of real estate, at least you have that that asset, that piece of real estate. So you say you spend $250,000 on some building that, uh, that you're going to rent out. And while it's relatively safe and the, and the price of real estate generally goes up, you know, there are cases when it does go down, as we discovered back during the uh, Great Recession during 2008 and 2009, there was a lot of real estate out there that was overpriced to begin with. And when uh, everything kind of collapsed and people started filing for bankruptcies and there were a bunch of foreclosures, there was an oversupply of real estate and the prices started to drop or they didn't move. Uh, which, you know, I saw my father owned a lot of real estate back in those days. And I saw some of the properties that he owned, um, some of the value just, you know, dropped by $50,000, $100,000. Or more, but he still owned the asset, so that's why it's it's safer because you still you still hold something. You're not just giving your money away. And if you're renting it out, you know it is passive, but not totally passive. I call that semi-passive because there's still a lot of work that you have to do if you're renting out a property. You have to uh, maintain it. You have to pay for insurance. Um, you know what you have to do with any real estate, uh, but you have to deal with repairs and tenants. Uh, you can't just ignore it and um, and leave it alone. You know, and it'll just make you money. There's still some work you have to do, and the more properties you have, the more work it'll take. But you know, if if you can put together enough enough properties where um, it earns you a, a decent enough income. Sorry about grabbing the microphone here. i got to move it. I'm popping a little bit. Um, it's better than a nine-to-five job because at least you're working for yourself and you know your tenants are paying you. But in, in the middle, between totally passive, like a savings account, and between something like real estate, that's where um, income through dividends or partnership distributions come into play. This is like somewhere in the middle. So you're not out there fixing toilets and getting quotes on roofs and uh, having to, you know, uh, hunt down some tenants for rent. Instead, you know, you're researching different companies and you buy stock in those companies and in turn, they pay you a dividend. Now you have to, you know, do some research there. So it's not totally passive. It's not um, it's, it's a bit better than semi-passive though. Um, sorry about that brain fart while I was thinking. Um, the, the important part is, is that 
where you're putting your money, your money's doing work for you. So it is going to pay you to own these companies. And and in general, the rule at least from what I've learned, in general, the rule of thumb is that the higher the dividend yield, the higher the percentage that they're paying, uh, the it's generally not as safe. So companies that are paying you a 2%, 3%, 4% in some cases, um, in general, are more safe investments than a company that's paying you 8%, 9%, 10%. And you know that's primarily why my... Um, my total portfolio is broken up into three different buckets, you know, low, medium, and high. The low one, I have a sizable amount of money in there, and it's generally safer than the other two. It doesn't uh, pay out as much, um, but the the growth, I would say the growth is probably greater than the other two, where um, because the the dividends that I get from those get reinvested, that's in an IRA that I have. So I have um, a bunch of uh, companies where I, I receive the dividends, then the dividends um, either go back into uh, the company that's paying me the dividend, or they go into a, a money market fund that pays the current rate of around 4% or so. It depends on, on what um, return I'm getting from the company, whether or not I purchase new stock, or whether I think the because um, you can reinvest, you know, and it'll be automatic when you when you um, set up these brokerage accounts. Mine is with Fidelity, and you can set it up so when a dividend comes in, it automatically goes and repurchases more stock in that company. Or you can set it to not do that and just go into a set money market fund. Uh, you know, you sw- I guess it's called a sweep. You know, the, they sweep the money into a money market fund that will pay you money, pay you interest rather. So where was I on that? Okay, yes. <laughs> Sorry about that. So the, so the money will grow um, in that account. Um, you know, the stock price goes up and the amount of money that I make in dividends adds into the pot. Uh, then, you know, the value of that portfolio will continue to grow. And that is my, uh, my best performing, I would say, portfolio um, over the long haul, let me see if I can pull those numbers up real quick. I didn't think I was going to look at this. I have a spreadsheet that I created where I track uh, the performance of all of these. And when I talk about performance too, I talk uh, in terms of, uh, I, I don't believe it's the way normal people or normal financial people track their performance. Because uh, mine is very simple. I started out with a certain amount of money, and how much money do I have today? So I use that and uh, calculate the growth or shrinkage of of that portfolio. And for the low yield portfolio, um, since I've opened it back in, I think it was 2019, um, that portfolio has has um, since its inception, has increased 39%. So that's the best performing portfolio I have. The other two are actually slightly down uh, since their inception date. Um, but that's the way it goes. The, you know, the, the yield is lower 
um, but it's safer. So the, the medium yield portfolio, I have about the same amount of money in the medium yield as I do in my IRA. And that one, um, since inception, is down 2%. And that one hasn't started, and uh, I didn't start that one until uh, 20, was it 2021. Because uh, this money I came into later. Um, let me see here. Scrolling back and forth. I don't know if we can hear that. Uh, but so that one's down about 2%. But I'm also pulling out of that, out of that portfolio uh, almost $30,000 a year in dividend and partnership distributions. So if I included that back into uh, a portfolio, um, let's see, I don't have the total dollar amount that I would be down. But anyway, I would be significantly up um, because that cash would go back into buying either, again, buying more shares of these companies or into some money market or high yield savings or something like that. So the, so the, the amount would grow. Um, and the same goes for my low, um, sorry, my high yield portfolio. Now that one, I have about half as much money in that one as I do the other two. Uh, and that one is a more high risk, high yield, and it's down about 6.9% since its inception, which also started in around about 2021. Uh, but that one too, and it only, you know, I've, I've got about half the amount of money, but that one brings in around $17,000 um, of annual income. So again, over the last two years, if I wasn't, you know, if I had a regular job and I wasn't pulling this money out to be my income, both those portfolios would be significantly higher. And yes, if I went out and got a regular job, um, that money could be, you know, invested, and I could continue to add to the wealth of the portfolio. But um, I was working, you know, a pretty decent, high-pressure job uh, for about 30, 30 years. You know, uh, thirty-five years total. Um, the high-pressure stuff was probably the real high-pressure stuff was probably about twenty years worth, uh, and I just had kind of had enough. You know, um, so this is why I chose this way where I'm, I work for myself by um, investing, investing my money. Uh, so that was, that's passive income. And if, um, if you follow my blog or you, you know, you read this, this is um, a fascinating way to make money where you put your, your money, this is where you're putting your money to work. It's the way I do it. I know it's not the way everybody else does it, but um, it's kind of nice to not have to go into an office or a regular job and uh, just kind of be able to figure out figure out life. Now, the third thing that I wish I knew more about uh, back in my 20s was taxes. Taxes, taxes, taxes. No, well, the only people that like taxes are the people who, who are taking the tax from you. Now, I remember when I was a kid, uh, I, I remember distinctly, I, I remember being in the car, I was talking to my father, and I asked him, I was like, you know, what are taxes? I heard about them from somewhere, and I don't remember where. Maybe it was on the news, maybe it was just somewhere on TV, somebody talking about taxes. And I, I think at the time I was old enough where I knew about sales tax, but I didn't know what income tax was. And, you know, my father was not one to really impart uh, his wisdom on all these things, 
you know, it's a different time, different era. So, you know, fathers didn't exactly uh, talk about these things or about much of anything. And he just told me, don't worry about it. You know, so fine. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't worry about it. And there was no really good way to learn about it back then because I'm talking about, this is probably the middle 1970s. I was born in 1966. So it's probably around, you know, the bicentennial, around 1976 or so. And the nearest public library to my house was about two miles away. There was no internet back then, so it wasn't easy to research something when you just felt like finding out about something. And I didn't really know anything about it until, you know, I, I went to work for the first time and received a paycheck. And it was kind of shocking. You know, the hourly wage I was making back then, uh, I think was around three bucks an hour. I don't even know if it was, if I was making, I don't even know if there was a minimum wage uh, back then. I'd have to go look all of that stuff up. I just know that this is what I was making, about three bucks an hour. And um, when I got the check, it's like, wait a minute. <laughs> this is $3 an hour. You know, I work for 40 hours and I'm not getting my full amount of money. <laughs> so I went to uh, the, uh, what's it called? Uh, there, was, there were no HR departments back then. Was, I think it was like a payroll manager. And I was asking and they're like, well, you know, I was just a kid. And so they look at me and they just say, well, welcome to the real world. So <laughs> uh, nobody, nobody, nobody bothered explaining it. I learned much later. And then, you know, later on, I learned the difference between income tax, uh, you know, your earned income and capital gains, which they're different. They're different and they, they're taxed differently. Capital gains, those are basically your, your passive income where you haven't done anything physically to make money, basically. That's pretty much how it goes. You know, your, your paycheck, something you get a W-2 for, that's your earned income and um, that is what you pay your, your basic income tax on, whatever the, whatever the income tax rates are in your state. And capital gains, capital gains is taxed at a much lower rate. And I forget what it is today. I think it's around, is it around 15% today? Let me check. Uh, let's see, federal, federal capital. See, now these are all things that a uh, financial professional would know off the top of his head, and I just don't. Uh, gains rate. That's what this is what proves to you that I'm just an amateur investor. Okay, long-term capital gains are subject to 0%, 15%, or 20%, depending on your taxable income. I didn't know it was graduated now. Uh let's see. Capital gains taxes on assets held for a year or less correspond to ordinary income tax brackets. So they'll be taxed at your uh earned income rate, whatever you get, you know, your paycheck from. So that starts off at 10% and increases up to 37%. So if you're making a regular paycheck, your capital gains, if you, if it's from an asset that you've only held for less than a year. Uh, let's see, short-term capital gains are taxed according to relevant federal, long-term capital gains subject to zero, 15% or 20%. According to the IRS, most people pay more, no more than 15% on their long-term capital gains. So let's say, you know, you're making, you know, a halfway decent living and you're paying 32% uh, 
uh, you know, income tax rate. If you're getting, you know, compare that to just 15% tax um, from capital gains. So, hold on, that's the drawer where I break out my calculator. So let's take $40,000. Let's just say a simple $40,000 income. Uh, what is, <laughs> I gotta look that up now. Everything I gotta look up. Sorry, this is this is the least professional podcast uh, you'll ever hear. Uh, let's see, federal income tax rate on $40,000. What is the threshold for $40,000? Uh, they're going to make me look up uh, look up tax tables. I don't want to look up tax tables. Oh, wait, here it is. Hold on. Okay, so um, it's actually <laughs> Forty thousand dollars. See, it's it's been that long since I've really kind of looked at any of this kind of stuff. So 23, 2023 tax brackets for a single filer. Uh, they really increased uh, the amounts of these brackets. So the first, your first forty thousand dollars for. For a single filer, um, you're going to pay at most 12%. So that's actually better than the <laughs> capital gains rate of $40,000. I don't know when when these things, when the when the thresholds increase this much. They need to lower the capital gains tax rate, that's for sure. Shit. Sorry, didn't mean to swear. Uh, but back in the day when I was actually earning regular income, you know, my tax rate back then was 35%, uh, which is kind of nuts. That's a lot of money. You know, when you're taking more than a third of your money away just from income tax alone. Sorry about that. That's the drawer. Um, you know, so apparently I, I have to still continue my... Uh, education on income tax rates because I wasn't prepared for that answer. Uh, but the other taxes that you have to pay, other than income and capital gains, you also have, uh, if you're going to own property, you have property taxes. And property taxes are like this hidden thing that you never really think about before you, you know, before you buy property. And, you know, I learned about that when I first bought my condo. And suddenly I got to pay this this property tax, which wasn't a great deal back in the late 80s, you know, on a $65,000 condo, it wasn't that big a deal. But then when we moved to the house, um, it started to become, you know, a sizable, a sizable amount. We paid back in 1988, um, it was around 179000 I think it was, for our house and the real estate tax on that house. Every year was around three grand. Now, over the 35 years that I lived there, the taxes just on, you know, for doing nothing, you know, yeah, it pays for infrastructure and things like that, but it, the, the rate just, you know, really skyrocketed. It went from $3,000 back in like 1988 to uh, about $12,000 in 
2020. You know, and at that price point, I'm renting my house from the state or in the county for $1,000 a month, which is, you know, do you really own your property at that point when you're paying that kind of money? Yes, I could sell it, which I did. I moved. I moved from Illinois to Georgia. Um, that was, you know, mostly the impetus for my move was the savings on property tax. You know, because I, I went into this um, early retirement or semi-retirement, whatever you want to call this, um, back in 2019. And I, you know, I'm looking at, again, I, you know, I'm looking at uh, my basic expenses, you know, what I'm bringing in and then necessary expenses, supplementary expenses, discretionary expenses. And I'm looking at this, I'm like, $12,000 a year. What am I getting for $12,000 a year from the state of Illinois and Cook County and my, you know, my local municipality? What am I getting for that kind of money? And I didn't have any kids anymore. My kids were grown and out of the house. You know, they never went to the public school system. I put them in a private school because I didn't like the public school system. So, you know, what was I getting? You know, I, t I had a public park near my house. Yeah, I walked through the park with my dog, and it paid for streets to be plowed in the wintertime and for maintenance and that kind of stuff. But was it 12000 Was I getting $12,000 of value out of that? I don't think so. So I started looking to other states, and I came to, to Georgia. And the reason is, is because I was able to get a house that cost less, was larger, with a bigger piece of land, where the property taxes were um, just a little over what I was paying uh, in the Chicago area in 1988. You know, I was, I'm paying less than half of my uh, property tax back in the Chicago area. So while the income tax rate in Georgia is higher right now. It's four, uh, five and three quarter percent. Um, and in the state of Illinois, they have a flat tax of 4.95%. Um, but in, in Georgia right now, they have, they have legislation that's going to drop it to 5.49% in 2024. And then it sh it's supposed to settle down into 4.99% as a flat rate in 2029. So effectively... You know, in the next six years, the income tax rate uh, will will be negligible. The difference, and I expect Illinois um, to raise their income tax rate. You know, property tax rates are are going up, and I'm I'm pretty sure that the income tax rate over there is going to start to climb. And I've I've heard rumblings about a uh, city of Chicago uh, income tax. Uh, to be imposed, which they didn't have before, and which I didn't live in the city back then, but um, I can see them doing it um, in the state and the city of Chicago um, because they've got a lot of spending that they need to still, uh, a lot of pension problems that they have that they need to uh, rectify. But anyway, um, with regard to taxes, so you, you also have other taxes like, uh, you know, tax on food, which is low here, I think it's 2%, um, and the tax on uh, other goods like sales tax in where I was living it's 10 percent so if you go and buy a tv set you know 
for $200, it's $220 when you pay at the register. Where here in Georgia, um, the uh, uh, was it the sales tax rate here is only six percent, so it's still a little high for my taste. But that's that's what it used to be back in Illinois, uh, back where I was living, you know, probably twenty, thirty years ago. So other things like gasoline, gasoline's like a dollar a gallon right now, cheaper here than it is up in the Chicago area, um, and all the other all the other little things are just less expensive here um, than they are back up there. So when I look at all of these things, though you know the taxes especially, they're they're always kind of hidden. They're not really right out in front of your face. They're and they're everywhere. Everything you do gets taxed. So it's important to kind of learn about those items and how they affect you know affect your life. And if you're looking to you know, save money and, and try to build yourself some generational wealth, not just wealth, you know, retirement wealth. If you're trying to put together something for, you know, the, your family um, to enjoy later on after you're gone, the, the best advice I can give, and I wish I received it when I was younger, is to learn about these three topics. <laughs> Excuse me. These three topics, you know, personal profit. You know, paying yourself first, figuring out what you need versus what you want, and then taking the excess money um, once you figure out your budget and putting that away, taking that personal profit, and then investing that into things that are going to pay you. Not just, you know, you can put them in the stock market in index funds and things like that, but they don't always pay you um, dividends. Some of those companies, you know, uh, like Apple pays a really low dividend. Um, I don't think Facebook pays any dividend. Amazon doesn't pay a dividend. Microsoft pays, you know, a low and uh, small dividend. Um, you know, and you can put your stuff in tech stocks and things like that and hope that the value will go up. And uh, granted, it has gone up quite a bit for those companies. But to me, investing for stock price growth, period, is like gambling. And I'm not really a gambler. So, I go for more of the boring companies that produce the things that we all use every single day, um, you know, day in and day out. They they provide the the backbone of all the other things that that everybody does. Every company does. Every person does. And these company gen, these companies generally pay out a much higher dividend than you know the technology stocks and their stock price, while it does tend to grow over time for most of these companies. Uh, it may not grow as fast, but at least it generally, in general, doesn't go down. So you're, you're maintaining your principal while they pay you money. Um, so those things, uh, along with taxes and how taxes affect you. Taxes are very complicated. Uh, you know, like I have an accountant that I use to do my taxes every year. Uh, and the tax law itself is extremely complicated, and there's no way I'm ever going to learn all the intricacies. I can't even remember what the stupid uh, income thresholds are for regular income tax, as as I proved today. But I think if you learn about those three things, um, that can go a long way towards you being able to build either retirement wealth, or if you start young enough, generational wealth. You don't have to earn a lot of money 
at your job to be able to build that wealth along the way. Because if you're young, you have time, and time is the is the key because then it all compounds on itself. Um, you know, the three percent you're earning uh, a year on this on this one stock, the the three percent yield, um, and you, you reinvest that in that company. The following year, you're getting three percent on the three percent you earned the previous year. So you get you know the the magic of compound interest. Um, you know, go, it goes a long way and it starts, you may start slow, but once you reach a certain point, um, that compound interest starts to build and build pretty quick. So that's what I'm going to leave you at. I've been yapping for almost an hour. Um, but I think if, if you, if you do those things, you do it early and you start now and starting anytime, whatever age you're at right, right now, starting now is better than starting never.